Well, we've only got a few Sundays left in our calendar year, and that is kind of a big deal, especially this year, because back in February, we launched something called The Whole Story. And I've done this little disclaimer at the beginning of virtually every message since February. We've gone through the entire story of the Bible in less than a year. We broke it down into 14 different series, and there we are on the very last one called How It Ends. We've, we've made it. I had some friends, by the way, not gonna name names, Pete Zeffo, who told me there is no way that we're gonna get through this by the end of the year. And, and yet, and here we are, here we are, Pete. So, um, <laughs> Pete's a good friend, I'm just teasing. So like, it's been a journey. And last Sunday, we began our very last series. It's a, a four-week series, so we have three weeks left on the book of Revelation which is, is how it ends. This is how the story ends. This is how God, this is how the Holy Spirit decided to tie the bow on scripture. And it's powerful. It's amazing. It's mysterious. It is a beautiful and fitting end. But we can all be honest with the fact that it's an end that many people have had a difficult time coming to terms with. You know, sometime, sometimes the endings of things are controversial. Sometimes people get a little confused by, by endings. And that's definitely been the case with Revelation. I'm sure that there are many of us in the room that are very familiar with Revelation. Some of you are like, it's my favorite, I read it a lot. Some of you have never read it on purpose. Because you're like, I don't want to. I don't wanna open up that can of worms. I've known some crazy weird people who are really into Revelation and I don't wanna become one of those people. So I'm just not going to read it and some of us, we just haven't had the chance. We feel intimidated. There's all kinds of of places that each of us sort of is when it comes to this, this finale. But, but can you imagine being God and, and you reveal yourself to the world over the course of centuries? And you do all these amazing things in history and you inspire people who hear from you to write things down and, and people read these words and, and it changes who they are and they understand you and they see you, but then you get to the very end and this is the way you've chosen to wrap it up. This is the way that you have decided to, to tie that bow and, and say, here, now it's complete. Now you see all that you need to see in terms of, of the word and people go like, I don't know if I'm gonna read the end. That, that, like, I'm not God, but if I was, I'm like, I wouldn't be happy with that. You know, like, no, please read the end. That's important, the end is so important. You would never watch an amazing movie and then it gets to the last five minutes. You're like, you know what, I don't wanna see. Don't wanna see how it ends. Now, we, we have to be able to embrace revelation and get over whatever holdups, hangups, intimidation factors, assumptions, or maybe even kind of previous programming in terms of how we read it. We gotta get over all of that and just say, Lord, show me how it ends. I wanna see you in it. Last Sunday was a primer. If you weren't here, we, we did sort of a, a primer on what Revelation is, what it is not, all the different ways that it tends to get read and interpreted. And, and it was kind of like a class session and some of you were, were awesome and, and man, you were here and you, you came back. I'm just amazed. I'm just truly amazed. So thank you for that. Um, if you weren't here last Sunday, you want kind of a primer on Revelation, uh, definitely give it a listen. These next three, we're gonna answer three questions. Three weeks, three questions. As we go through Revelation, it's the question who? That's today. Where and why? Who, where, and why? Now, as I said kind of at the end of last week's message, why not when? Like, Justin, come on. Like, it's Revelation. Look at what's happening in the world. I mean, there is a, a war in, in Israel right now. Like, I mean, when? Like, it's gotta be now, right? When? That is a, a relevant question with, with Revelation for sure. But, you know, Jesus actually said this in Matthew chapter 24. He's hanging out with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. It says that his disciples came to him privately, and this is after he's kind of been talking about some end times sounding stuff. And they say, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Like, when, when is this going down? That's the question they have, when? And if you keep reading in Matthew 24, Jesus says a lot of different stuff. And it's like, there's gonna be wars and rumors of wars, and there's gonna be like earthquakes. He actually talks about birth pains as an illustration. Like right before a child is born, there are birth pains and they intensify and they become more frequent. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that next, next Sunday. But Jesus gets to the conclusion of this conversation and he says this to these men. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the son himself. Only the father knows. Only the father. 
And so it's good for us to be watchful. It's good for us to, to, to see the world and see things happen and go, Lord, it seems like there's things that you've talked about in your word and this seems like it lines up and, and that's great. By the way, Jesus followers have been doing that for thousands of years. But sometimes our obsession with when leads us to some really silly places. And, and if, if Revelation, guys, was only about the when, that would mean it's only relevant to those who might happen to be living at the end. And there will be an end. And we talked about that last week. Even our secular world, like Hollywood, is obsessed with the end. Half the movies that come out every year are about the end of the world. It's like something inside of us knows one day this is gonna end somehow. But if, if that's all Revelation's about, you, you might as well go back to anyone who was living you know, in the past and say, hey, don't even read it. It has nothing to do with you. Because it's just about the end. It's just about, it's only relevant to those people who are in that moment. But no, clearly, this is a book that's been meant for all people, for all time. The early church was inspired and encouraged and spurred on by this, by this book. And here we are 2,000 years later, and, and we're meant to be the same. When is, is not the primary question. I'm not saying it's not an important question, but I'm telling you it is not the primary question. It's the question we just naturally wanna ask, and even Jesus says to his disciples, hey, don't become too obsessed with that question, because it's just not for you to know. And so today, we're gonna explore who. Because if you read Revelation and you walk away only thinking about what and when and you miss the who, you miss the point. Today we're gonna look at the who of Revelation and it is Jesus. And it's powerful and it's amazing. And I'm so glad that you're here. Like I'm so glad that you're here for today. And those watching online, I'm so glad you're with us as well because this is, this is important. It's funny that this last week, a couple days ago actually, I had a very odd like memory like an odd random moment in my life that popped in my mind related to what we're talking about today and it's gonna seem so random, guys. Like just I'm gonna apologize on the front end for how out of left field this story is and how there's no way this connects but that's how my brain works and, and it's like God used this random memory to, to help, help something click for me when it comes to revelation related to Jesus, okay? So, so just go with me and trust me a little bit, all right? About a year ago, I was uh, hanging out with my oldest. He'd had a He'd had a basketball tournament um, somewhere south of Atlanta. I, you, he plays basketball, not many people know that. And so um, we were on our way back and it was just the two of us and, it, and he, he needed to eat, he had played, I was hungry. It was lunchtime and traditionally, and many of you who have children know this, that like the tastes of children don't always line up with the tastes of parents. And as a parent, you're either selfish and you just make your kids eat what you want. And let's be honest, sometimes you do. Or what happens more often than not, you sacrifice what you would desire for what they want and you just settle. But this day, he said something to me that just was like, seriously, like, yes, yes. He saw a Publix and he said, dad, can we get pub subs? And I was like, yeah, like, oh, here we go. You know what I mean? He never asked for that before. That's like grown up food, you know, like pub subs, come on. So we, we park in this Publix, we get out, I go first, you know, I'm looking at like all the options and I'm sitting there like, yeah, here we go. And so I went with, uh, I went with multi-grain bread. I went multi-grain and I said, I want, I want turkey. This is my, my normal turkey, ham, salami. Uh, I want pepper jack cheese, lettuce, banana peppers, jalapeno peppers, mustard, mayo, salt and pepper, a little bit of oil and vinegar, right? Put it all together. It's like, whew. here we go. Someone said, amen. I like that. Okay. <laughs> so I get mine. Next is, is my you know, at the time, 12-year-old, and he just goes, uh, white bread, turkey. And the lady looks at him like, and? And he's like, no, that's all. <laughs> and she says, do you want cheese? He went, no cheese. Do you want any lettuce or any, any veggies? No. Condiments? No. And so here I am with, with my, like, fully loaded perfect, like year, by the way, years of like handcrafting exactly what I want in it in the right quantities, and here he is. And I was like actually sort of offended as a human being. Like you, <laughs> dude, like you have all of this in front of you. you, you're looking at all of these ingredients and you just pick the most basic thing. And also as a dad, I'm not paying $9 for <laughs> like two pieces of white bread and a few slices of turkey, you know? And I remember what I said to him, I said, that is, that's not even a pub sub. And he said, technically, it is. And he was right, because they charged me for it, so technically, <laughs> it is. 
but it was so, it was so boring. He ate it and he said it was wonderful, whatever. But, but it was just so, it was basic and it was boring and to use a non-technical term, it was dinky. It was just like a dinky sandwich. And, and here's why this memory, I'm telling you, I don't think on this often. It's not like I'm journaling. You know, I was thinking about the pub sub again today. It's not something I've thought about in a long time. But here's where this came out of left field as I'm reading Revelation and I'm preparing for this message. I, I have watched, I'm just gonna be honest. I have watched in the last 20 years the, at least what I believe, what I've seen in, in the American church, a massive effort to try to reduce Jesus down into the most basic, boring, technically it's still Jesus, but it's like the lowest level version of Jesus that you can, you can have. I've watched that be the Jesus that the church wants to present to the world. And you know, even the, but just, just like my son, even the most dinky pub sub was good, according to him. Like it's still bread and turkey, it's good bread and good turkey. So it tastes good. Like even, even basic reduced down at his most fundamental level, Jesus is awesome, right? A lot of times the way it works in the church world is like, hey, he, he was a great man, a great teacher, loved people, said amazing things, did amazing things, and he died and rose again. And that is true and that is awesome. Like even if you reduce Jesus down to the most basic version of Jesus, it's still great. But that's not Jesus. Like that's, that's, that's the basic Jesus. And it, it's, it might be palatable and it might be the version of Jesus that's least likely to like offend or, or least likely to cause people to have to pick a side on, but like, here's what I'm saying. Revelation does not allow us to settle for basic Jesus. Revelation presents us with the most complete, awe-inspiring, multidimensional, layered, bigger than we can possibly put into words, Jesus. Because that's who he is. And Revelation begs us, begs us to take Jesus as he is. And it shows us who we're dealing with in a way that if we can see it and wrap our minds around it, the only thing we can do is, is like fall down and worship. And so my hope is as we, as we roll through a lot of revelation this morning and we look at, at the who, we look at Jesus, we recognize that man, I, I, don't, like, I don't want dinky Jesus. I want, I want all of him. I want, to, I want to grasp as much as I can all of Jesus. Does that make sense? So we're gonna start in Revelation chapter one. The writer John is exiled on an island called Patmos because he's a Jesus follower. This is a part of his persecution. The church at that time is unbelievably persecuted. The, the apostles, other than, than John, they've all been killed and martyred for their faith along with thousands of others. Being a Jesus follower is a difficult thing in this time. And John writes, it was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit and suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast and it said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Amen. All right, that, that's by the way. Yeah, okay, let's go. You guys are in it, and I'm in it with you. This is how Revelation begins. 
This is how it starts. Right off the bat, like John turns around and he needs us to know we are dealing with, with what he says, the first and the last. In other places in Revelation, it's the Alpha and the Omega. This is, this is Jesus. And my goodness, there's so many. We, we could spend months just on this one section alone. We, we really could because this is so layered with, with references to Scripture. If, if you didn't know this, Revelation, ooh, it's so interesting. And, and this is a bit of a tangent, so I can't spend much time on it. We'll have a conversation about this another time. Revelation is interesting because John never directly quotes another verse in the Bible in Revelation. There's not one moment where John actually, like word for word, copy-paste, directly quotes, which is actually sort of odd. That happens a lot in Scripture. There's all kinds of cross-references. However, even though he never directly quotes, virtually every line in Revelation uses Scripture. Like, it's, it's, it's why it's both new and familiar. It, it's that John is so inspired by the Holy Spirit and he has such a depth of knowledge of, of the Old Testament, the New Testament. I mean, this is not some random add-on at the end of the Bible. Sometimes it's viewed that way. No, no, no. It is incorporating almost every single major image, major piece of symbolism, all these, these, it's like it's painting with colors that we've seen before, but in a picture we haven't seen quite yet. It's amazing. Let me give you an example. You'll see this. Just this section alone and what it's referencing. Daniel chapter seven. This is the Old Testament. Daniel is a prophet. He has a vision from God. And he says, I watched as thrones were put in place and the ancient one sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him. Many millions stood to attend him. And then the court began its session and the books were open. And he goes on in Daniel 7 to say, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal, it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. You see in the Revelation language callbacks to some of this imagery. And then it tracks with us to a story that we find in, in Matthew chapter 17. It says, six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and he led them up a high mountain to be alone. And as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus and Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's so wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. And the disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. There's been all these moments all throughout scripture that have, have given us these pictures of, of, of who God is and what he's like, and it's, it's intense stuff. You know, eyes like fire, and, and there's light, and it's shining, and you can't, you can't handle it. And this is John turning around, and it's like in that moment, he recognizes, oh, it's Jesus, and it's always been Jesus. All those prophets of old in those moments where they, they had visions and they saw someone and they tried their best to describe what they're seeing, they were trying to describe Jesus. And on that mountain that Jesus took his disciples to and for a moment, just for a moment, they saw who he is, not who he was. Jesus was a man for 33 years. But Jesus is the eternal first and last the one who has all the authority in heaven and on earth, the one who holds the keys of death and the grave and, and all that you wanna say, that's who he is. And it's easier for us sometimes, makes sense, to, to remember who he was than, than who he is, but John's letting us know, no, it's always been Jesus. And there's just layer after layer of symbolism. Like it says that a, a two-edged sword comes from his mouth and some of you are like, that is freaky and weird. It's not literal. Okay, I'll just let you know it's not literal, like he's not opening his mouth and a sword is coming out. Right, this is again, this is John using scripture. Every line almost is painted with, with scripture. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The word of God is like that. And this is John realizing that when Jesus speaks, Jesus' words cut through all the lies in our world. They cut right through it. We live in a world that is so full of lies. We get lied to all the time. 
The people in power in this world, they, they tend to think that we're stupid, that we're idiots, that we'll fall for it, and they just say lies, it's all spin, and Jesus, Jesus can say one word and it can cut through all of that. No, no lie can, can withstand it. So when Jesus speaks, it is true. The clothing that Jesus is wearing in this description, it's clearly a callback to the clothing that the high priests were supposed to wear. And this is this reminder that Jesus is our high priest. And in the Jewish culture, that's the one who stands before God on your behalf. And Jesus is both God and man. And so he is both the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he's also our priest. He's one of us and he allows us by his grace and his mercy and his sacrifice on the cross and the fact that he paid for our sins, he allows us to be in the presence of God. Now we're family with God, it's awesome. And this is how Revelation starts. Let's look at another picture of Jesus that we see in, in Revelation. I'm gonna read Revelation chapter five, the whole thing, it's pretty short. Here we go. John continues, then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And guys, remember, as I, as I go through this, if you weren't here last week, symbolism. Like, Revelation is a certain type of literature, and it is just jam-packed with symbolism, and, and all these things have deeper meanings, and just try your best to stick with it. Here we go. I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne, and there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel. I love that it's a strong angel. I didn't know there were other types who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it, but no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it, but one of the 24 elders, and Revelation chapter four will we'll tell you what all that's about, says, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out to every part of the earth. He stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which, with incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said amen. And the 24 elders all fell down and worshiped the lamb. All right, there's a lot there. It's just chapter five. The lamb, this lamb that's worshiped. Okay, again, the symbolism and the meaning, it's, it's so rich, it's so powerful. The word that John actually uses for lamb in Revelation is, is a different word for lamb than is used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's this Greek word arnion, and it, it literally means like a little lamb. Like it emphasizes how small this lamb is. And it's this really interesting kind of surprise because the angel says, look, the lion of Judah, Jesus was from the tribe of, of Judah in the nation of Israel, and and he's called the Lion of Judah. So, you know, if, if an angel tells you, hey, look, behold, the Lion of Judah, and you turned around, what do you expect to see? I don't know about you. I'm thinking lion. Like, that's my, or, or maybe it's a metaphor, you know, like a, a lion, like a, like a strong dude. I wanna see, like, you know, some guy just jacked, walking like, oh, that, that, that's the lion. I get it. But he turns around, he doesn't see an actual lion or even some really strong warrior. He sees a, a little lamb. And not like, oh, oh, how cute, right? No, this lamb has been slaughtered. 
This lamb has been murdered. And that, that is the picture we're given of the one who is worthy to open the seals. And if, if you know Revelation, opening of these seals and the trumpets and the bowls, it's judgments pronounced on the earth. And it's this re reminder that the only one who's worthy to judge is the one who's lived as one of us, died in our place, the one that we actually judged and who went through all of that and, and who else could be worthy to judge the world? And, and there's, there's, again, all this symbolism, all this stuff that you read, you're like, weird, what is going on? Like this, this lamb happens to have seven horns and seven eyes and you may have never seen a seven horned seven eyed lamb before, but again, it's, it's symbolism. Like, what is this all about? Well, in, in the Old Testament, remember, John's always, he's painting every picture with scripture. Like Zechariah chapter one. Zechariah is a prophet toward the end of the Old Testament. And he says, then I looked up and I, I saw four animal horns. What are these? I asked the angel who was talking with me and he replied, these horns represent the nations that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Horns are often a symbol in the Old Testament of power, but not just like singular individual power, like national power, earth influencing power. And it says that the lamb has seven horns. Seven is a number in, in this form of literature, apocalyptic literature that we talked about last week. The numbers are even symbolic. Seven is a number of perfection. It's the number of completeness. And so this is, this is like John saying, this lamb has perfect, complete power. Power over all the nations. Power over all the earth. And it says seven eyes, that's strange, seven eyes. Well, Zechariah, again, it's a callback. Chapter four, it says, then the angel who had been talking with me returned and woke me as though I had been asleep. What do you see now, he asked, and I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. And around the bowl are seven lamps, each having seven spouts and wicks. And I see two olive trees and on each side of the bowl. And then I asked the angel, what are these, my Lord? What do they mean? And we go on to verse 10, it says, the seven lamps represent the eyes of the Lord that search all around the world. It's this understanding that Jesus sees everything, that he sees all. That, that as he looks out at the world, there's nothing he doesn't see, there's nothing he doesn't understand. He sees everything. So he has total power, total authority, and he also has complete and, and total knowledge, understanding, and vision. There's nothing he doesn't see, and there's nothing that he doesn't understand. So we have Jesus, this eyes of fire and mouth sword and voice like roaring rivers and thunder and all this kind of crazy stuff. And then also, also we have this, this lamb slaughtered. Again, we're just getting multiple looks at Jesus, all these different layers. Are you good to continue? All right, let's go on. Let's go to, let's go to Revelation 19. This is, this is who? All right, here we go. Then I saw heaven open, and a white horse was standing there, and its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly, and he wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire. Sounds familiar, right? And on his head were many crowns. By the way, ancient kings would sometimes wear multiple crowns to signify that they had authority in multiple places. And so this is Jesus who has authority everywhere. It says a name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. And the armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. And on his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Some of you are like, I prefer the lamb. Um, and then I saw the beast, and this is referencing a, 
uh, some intense stuff. We'll talk more about that this, this next week. And I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured. And with him, the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had adopted the mark of the beast and who worshiped his statue. And both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Mm. It's not a food truck Sunday, so I can read this. We're good. <laughs> and then we see Revelation 20.10. It, it kind of continues this train of thought. Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this, okay, this is intense. Yeah. And, and remember, guys, symbolism, right? Like it said, his mouth, like a two-edged sword. And here we have the same, the same thing from his mouth, a, a double-edged sword, and it comes out and it, and it slaughters. This, this isn't necessarily talking about like a literal war, although it could be. And, and sometimes it's hard for us to, like, it's hard for us to see this version of Jesus and be like, oh, okay, I don't know what to do with that. I, I get that. That's because we see everything through the lens that we've been trained to see things in this world. Here's a quote that, that I read this week in, in preparing that stuck out to me, that wars throughout history have been matters of ambition, tyranny, and oppression. But when the conquering Christ comes, his power will be exercised in justice. If you've ever looked at the world and noticed that there is a thing called evil, and it is there, and it is real, and it exists, Revelation 19 and this conquering Jesus, this, this rider on the horse, this is letting us know that he will not allow evil to continue. And you know, it's, it's so interesting, like we, there's a little bit of an aside, but we have to have the ability as people to see evil and call it what it is. We have to have that. Now, th there's a certain version of Christianity that's just like a, a, a guy on a street corner yelling sinner at people and just calling everything evil. And, and that's just not particularly helpful. That's definitely not what Jesus did. He didn't walk around and just go, evil, 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 right? Um, but when Jesus came across evil, he dealt with it. You have to understand this about Jesus. We, we do see this in his story on the earth time and time again. Like what happened when Jesus came across something demonic? And you might be like, I don't understand demonic stuff. It's weird and creepy. Yeah, you're, me, me neither. Like, but, but it's real. Evil is real. What, what happened when Jesus encountered evil? He dealt with it. There's a story of a man who comes to Jesus and he is possessed with with a multitude of demons. And this multitude of demons falls down in fear in the presence of Jesus. And they immediately begin, like they know who they're dealing with, like they probably understand Revelation 19. They understand like the cosmic power of Jesus. And, and they, they don't see like a, a meek, mild-mannered preacher they see Jesus and they fall down and they immediately beg for mercy. And Jesus will not allow them to stay in this man and he says, fine, you know what? They're like, please just don't send us into the pit, basically, whatever all that's about. And Jesus says, okay, and he sends them into this, this whole group of pigs and the pigs run off of a cliff and drown in the ocean. And then the people are like, please leave Jesus. It's actually, they're like, you killed all our pigs, we need you to leave, <laughs> you know? But like that, that's an intense story, right? Like even in the life of Jesus, there's these moments where you're like, whoo. When Jesus encounters evil, he deals with it. Sometimes our, our enemy, Satan, sometimes the enemy appeals to really good aspects of who we are, like our, our compassion, and tries to twist our compassion to make us into people who are unwilling to just say something is wrong to make us people who, who have lost our ability to look at something that is obviously wrong and, and awful and say, well, that is evil. 
We see this in the world all the time. We see this in the world right now, like on, on a major stage, like on a major stage, like, like with, with Hamas, okay? There's been so many people in the last month, month and a half who've been like, well, it's complicated. You know, it's not complicated. Evil is not complicated. It's obvious. Don't be deceived. When you look at evil and it's evil, you're like, that's evil. And the challenge we have as people is sometimes it's like evil and we can't do anything about it. You know, we, what am I supposed to do? Well, understand that when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to God, there is nothing that he will ever encounter where he says, well, I can't do anything about that. No, he can. He has that power. And whatever symbolism, whatever amount of it is reality and, and literal versus figurative, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the fact that when Jesus returns, he will confront evil and evil will lose. It will absolutely lose. Yeah, we can clap for that. And, and this reminds us that he is both the lamb slaughtered for the sins of the world. He's filled with love and compassion. By the way, guys, it's not talking about evil in like a sense of ignorance where this is just people or nations that just don't know any better. Jesus encountered people that didn't know any better all the time. And every time he encounters someone who just doesn't know better, he teaches them and he shows them compassion and he shows them love. But then there are others who know better. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, for example. Nicodemus in John chapter three lets us know that they all knew Jesus came from God. He says, teacher, we know that you're from God because no one could do the things you're doing unless God had sent them. Like, we get it, you're from God. But then at some point, those same people, even though they knew he was from God, said, we gotta kill him. There are people who see God exactly as he is and they understand that he's good and they just decide, no, I will stand against you. And that does not work out. And we should be comforted by the fact that when we look at a world and we see evil and horrific things and we don't even know how to, how to go about it, that there is a God, he is real, he is alive, he is good, he is holy, he is just, he is merciful and he is kind, but he will conquer evil once and for all. And it's intense. And it, it should be. And so we have Jesus, the, the high priest filled with light and and just in his presence, you wanna fall down. We have Jesus, the lamb, slaughtered on behalf of, of all of us, given as a sacrifice for our sins, and, and then because of that, worthy to, to be worshiped and worthy to judge the world. And then we have Jesus, the conqueror. And let's, let's look at one more picture, if you guys don't mind. Let's go to Revelation chapter 21. This is right toward the end. And he says, I saw no temple in this city. This city is the new Jerusalem. It's this paradise that God is ushering into the world in Revelation. It says, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Guys, think about this. Like, in terms of temple, um, you know, they were used to going to a place to worship and so are we. Okay, we come together on Sunday mornings to be in the presence of, of God, not because God lives here and when you go home, he's not there, but there's just something special about a large gathering full of people worshiping the Lord. And Jesus said, when two or more of you gather together in my name, I am there with you. Okay, and so for thousands of years, Jesus' followers have gathered because among one another, we all share the same spirit. I know not all of us have decided whether or not we follow Jesus, and that's awesome, by the way. Like, if you're a guest, great. We're glad you're here. You should, Jesus, he's, he's the one. Like, do it. But, but like, if Jesus were physically like a street over, today, I would hope that none of you would come here because I wouldn't be here. You know what I'm saying? Like, like if, if Jesus were, you know, a few exits down, I would hope none of us would be like, oh, let's all go to his hands and talk about Jesus. Instead, we're like, let's all go to Jesus. And it's amazing to think about this, this aspect in heaven. There's no, there's no temple because he's there. There's no like place that we go to learn about him because we just are with him. Like it's, that's, ooh, that gets me excited. Basically, it means in heaven, you never have to go to church, is what I'm saying. <laughs> like that's, that's, I mean, some of us are like, good, I'm glad, I've been wondering, right? Because <laughs> you're just with him, it's relationship, it's beautiful. And he says, and the city has no need, oh, this is so powerful, the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light. 
and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory, and its gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there. There's a lot of references in scripture to darkness and light. You know, like, darkness, it's evil, it's temptation, it's sin. I mean, it's just even, like, it's amazing how many bad things happen at night. You know what I mean? Like, as a parent, those of you who have kids, like, if you wake up and it's, it's past midnight and you hear one of your kids awake, none of you are like, I bet they're doing something fruitful right now. You know? <laughs> Probably studying, reading a good book. You know, you're like, what are they doing? Why are they up? What's going on? Like, you instantly go, something bad's happening because nothing good happens past midnight. Like, that's just the way that it works. Like, darkness and night has always been associated with evil, and so we've, we've throughout human history, we have done everything we can to take advantage of as much of the light as we get, and, and then we do everything we can to protect ourselves against and mitigate the darkness. That's like human history. But in, in heaven, there is no, there's no darkness. Proverbs 4.19 says that the way of the wicked is like total darkness. They have no idea what they are stumbling over. We unfortunately live in a dark world. And sometimes we find ourselves stumbling around in the dark, doing our best not to trip over all the stuff that's in our way. We don't always see clearly. We don't always understand what's going on around us or even in us. But when Jesus shows up, he has a way of illuminating everything. People saw themselves more clearly in the presence of Jesus. People understood the world more clearly in the presence of Jesus. And in heaven, there's no such place, there's, there's nowhere that isn't in the presence of Jesus because it's him. Like he, He's the light. The sun doesn't even need to shine anymore, it says, because Jesus is the light and, and just the lamb, him, provides all the light that we need. And now there's no fear, there, there's no deception, there's no sin, there's no evil, there's no worry, there's no mistrust because the light of the world, Jesus, the light of the world, he himself said, I am the light of the world. And then he calls us the light of the world through our relationship with him. But that light is in its full force, completely and totally uncovered, unblocked, unobstructed, just the light of God shining. And you know, it's amazing how often we even have phrases in our, our world, like sometimes you seem to look at something in a different light, like everything looks right in the light of Jesus. You see everything as it is in the light of Jesus, and that is what, that's what the world is moving toward. It doesn't always feel like that. I look at the world and go, I don't, I don't think it seems like it's going that way. But it is. And by the way, imagine reading this, and worship team, you guys can, can make your way back. Imagine reading this, and you're a, a first century Christian being persecuted by Rome and you're reading about Jesus, this conqueror that's gonna like judge the nations. Are you telling me like, yeah, it seems like we're losing if you were in the first century. It seems like Jesus lost and we're losing and Rome persecuting us right now has all the power and, and, and Rome, I mean, come on. Who can stand against Rome? Well, Rome doesn't really exist anymore at all. I mean, you can go to Rome and look at ruins and yet the kingdom of Jesus has withstood, withstands, continues to grow. The, the, the kingdom of Jesus has and will outlive every, every rising and falling empire in human history. Nations and empires come and go, but the kingdom of God is established forever. Amen. And it probably wouldn't have felt like that if you were a first century Christian, and sometimes it doesn't feel like that now, but just look at history. Nothing can stop Jesus. Nothing has. He, he is the light of the world, and he is the, the high priest just radiating with eyes of fire and, and, and speaks truth that's as sharp as a sword, and he is the lamb, the, the little lamb, perfect, spotless lamb slaughtered on our behalf because he loves us, paying the price for our sins, and, and he's all of that. He's the conquering hero. He's all of that. And these are just, by the way, a few of the images that, that Revelation gives us of Jesus. This is not even complete. It's all about him. It's all about who? Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of another food story as I close. And it's kind of funny that I'm gonna talk about this with like ambient music playing behind me. Um, but it's, it's good, keep it going. So uh, 
I was in New York City a few years ago and I had a very opposite experience as my son had at, at Publix. I was at a, a like renowned pizza shop in New York. It wasn't fancy, it wasn't like a nice sit down restaurant, just this place packed with people. And you go up and there's like the pizza that's been like given that day and you go, I want that one. And you, know, you pick it and you, and you move along. Like it's like, you gotta move. And I get there and I was young, I was like 18, 19. And, uh, and I see this one that looked awesome except it had olives. It was either olives or mushrooms. I don't remember perfectly, but it's something I don't like. And I was like, ooh, hey, can I have that but no olives? And the guy just went, no. <laughs> and I'm like, look, I, like I'm from the, like we're, we're from the South. Like can you, like Chick-fil-A, let's use them as an example, okay? They put pickles on their sandwiches. Show of hands, how many of you get the sandwich with no pickles? Right, and when you say no pickles, they go, it would be my pleasure to take the pickles off for you. <laughs> Nothing would make me happier than to remove these pickles from your sandwich, right? Can you imagine, just imagine being at Chick-fil-A and being like, oh, uh, no pickles, and they go, no. You're eating the pickles, like our brains would explode. <laughs> Something's wrong, right, it's like that. It's like a moment that I had, like imagine my son being at, at Publix and being like, oh, uh, just turkey, and they're like, no. And they just start putting the other things on it. Like, you're eating this. I don't want that, okay? <laughs> okay, this is the connection. <laughs> we don't get to pick what parts of Jesus we worship. We don't, Revelation isn't providing us with ingredients that we get to, to custom pick from and go, ooh, I really like the high priest Jesus. I love the lamb, the light's good, the conquering, eh, like that. Uh, no, 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 no. Like, I was, I was like offended for a moment in that pizza shop. I really was, because I'm like, I'm the customer, okay? But then when you think about it, actually, I was audacious and prideful. Because here I'm in this renowned pizza shop, and this guy who runs it, he, the guy that makes the pizzas, like he's, he's renowned. He's like one of the greatest pizza chefs in the world. And, and he, knowing all that he knows and all the ways that flavors combine with stuff, he decided this is what I'm preparing, this is what I'm laying out. And me, an 18-year-old kid who just doesn't like olives that much, um, has the audacity to say, hey, I'd like you to change it for me. Like, when you really think about it that way, like, yes, I, he was right to say no. Like, here's, what, here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus is all of these things. Revelation it, it refuses to let us settle for a dinky Jesus. And it refuses to allow us to kind of pick and choose which version of Jesus that we like. We don't get to custom order him. Like it is, it's saying to us, this is who he is. And he is amazing and, and loving and kind and meek and servant-hearted. And he is also powerful and mighty and he will destroy evil itself and he will conquer anything that opposes what is right and what is good. And he is all of that. He's all of that. Take him or leave him. But that's who he is. And, and, and we have to be people. We have to be people that just receive him as he is. And we're filled with awe and gratitude and wonder. There can't be one iota inside of us. I mean, if it's there, there's mercy and grace to let that be worked out. But guys, this is an opportunity today for us to work it out and say, I just, I love you as you are. Like as a church, we're not Jesus's PR team. It's not our job to say, hey Jesus, you know, this part of you doesn't really track well with modern culture. No, 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 no. Take him or leave him. This is who he is. And he's amazing. And he's, 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 he's God. And, and this is who he is. And we either worship him or we reject him. Those are the options. That's it. I know that sounds, that sounds harsh. It, it is. Because when you get to the end, those are the options. That's all that's left. And so, so what do we do with this? Well, I say we worship him. I don't know about you, okay? So let's go back to Revelation 5. We read this. He said, I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered 
to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Just one chapter before, we see the angels in heaven. And it says in, in verse eight, that day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. We're gonna take Lord's Supper quickly. And then we're gonna have something, we don't do this very often, but we're gonna, we're gonna have more worship. And I know for some of us, it's like, it's a chance to get out early, right? I know you're not gonna do that. I was thinking about that this morning and how, how much of a privilege it is that we get to worship and, and to do one more song together this morning is a privilege. And I was thinking about how dignified I can be sometimes, you know? Like I can be kind of dignified as a, like I'm not gonna sing. I'm a man. Men don't sing. Well, we, we do, but you know, in a manly way, collected, right? Controlled. It says that thousands and millions of angels worship him. That in heaven, it says all the creatures in heaven and on the earth and under the earth sing and worship him. If, look, if, if angels, greater beings than, than me, if angels cannot help but worship him, who am I to keep silent in his presence? There's no place for dignity when you're face to face with the King of Kings. And so we have a chance to, to worship him. And I'm really excited about that. Let's take Lord's Supper together as we step into that. Father, we thank you for this piece of bread. You are the lamb slaughtered. You are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are the conqueror. You are the light of the world. You are glory. You are the first and the last. You are the living one, the one who defeated death, the one who holds the keys to the, to the grave and to death itself. And yet you made yourself into a spotless, perfect, small sacrifice. And you died in our place. And I don't even understand that. I can't even begin to understand what all goes into that, Lord, and all the depths of meaning that's there, but I will take it and I am thankful for it, Lord, thank you. Let's take the bread. Lord, we thank you for this juice. We thank you for your blood. Lord, you, you bled. The lamb was slaughtered. But this gives us life. And we're reminded, Lord, that as we worship you this morning, you gave your life, but death could not stop you. And your life continues on and it will never stop and it will never cease. And you give your life, your eternal life, you give it to us and we share in it, Lord, and we thank you for that. We love you, Lord. Let's take the juice.